Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is O.J. Shabazz coming to you from New York City, New York. It is certainly a distinguished honor and a privilege this evening to welcome you to the eighth installment in this multi-part series of lessons, the revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the Word of God, fact or fiction. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, either the Bible is the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of God, or it is not. There is no middle ground in this consideration. Either the Bible is certainly the product of the mind of God, or it is a byproduct of humanistic ingenuity and wisdom. We live in a time today where, once again, as has been the case through the many years, where individuals have made an insurmountable number of attacks on the Bible and even against the God of the Bible. And so this series of lessons, Revelation, Inspiration, and Illumination, has been designed to be an apologetic defense, uh, asserting the fact that the Bible, as we now have it today, in the English language, is certainly nothing less than the Word of God. Over the recent uh, many weeks, turning into now two months, I have uh, attempted to treat a number of considerations in addition to the notion of revelation, inspiration and illumination i've also probed matters like copy or rather matters like uh is the bible uh incomplete uh because we do not find the apocryphal books or the pseudepigraphal writings in the bible uh why just 66 books did god intend for us to only have 66 or are there other books from the bible missing we have dealt with the notion of oral tradition and textual transmission uh, and given you a definitional perspective in regard to those different subjects and topics. And so tonight I want to take a few moments to study with you uh, an answer to the question, what, what about copyist errors in the Word of God? Uh, the presence of copyist errors uh, in sacred writing in the many manuscripts that have come down to us uh, over the last 2,000 years, does that render the Bible not the Word of God? Does it, does it uh, indict the fact that God is the author uh, and the inspirer of the greatest book that has ever come across these mundane shores? What about copyist errors? And the copyist errors of which uh, we are aware and about which we speak uh, do those errors invalidate the Bible as the Word of God? I want to answer with a resounding no. And I want to offer you a framework of thinking. I want to offer you some definitional perspective. And I want to offer you at least one way to view the notion of copyist errors. What I'm going to do tonight is primarily cover five points. And I want to provide an adequate roadmap so that you can... Uh, follow me and those of you that are attempting to take copious notes as uh, we progress through this study you'll know the direction in which I'm going. Number one, when we talk about copyist errors there are two very important considerations when viewing the di divine component. And I'm going to advance the notion that the divine component that comes into play when it has to do with the revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the Word of God when it has to do with the, the, the theonusta or the breathing of God's word, which uh, subsequently has been recorded in this book called the Bible, 
when looking at the divine component, which is God, there are two important considerations. One is the mysterious, miraculous power of inspiration. And then number two, uh, the notion of providence. And if you're like me, for many years I heard people in the uh, studies of Christology and theology constantly reference the word providence, often without giving a real definition and a real understanding of what is meant by providence. Tonight, I'm going to give you a detailed definitional perspective of providence because providence and the miraculous power of inspiration are two considerations that are critical in understanding the divine component, which is God, when we look at these alleged copyist errors or the errors uh, that were enjoyed by scribes and copyists who copied these manuscripts time and time and time again. Subsequent to the definitional perspectives of these two considerations, I then want to move on and talk about at least three principles that I pray will help you understand divine providence. I'm big on providing definitional perspective. I'm big on uh, providing clarity uh, relative to principles uh, for understanding a given topic or subject. Uh, next of all, I want to take a few moments to talk about the work of the copyist. And then fourth of all, the, the alarming uh, trumpet that's being sound in our time, we have no autographs, we have no originals, we have no autographs. Well, my response tonight will be no autographs, no problem. And I want to tell you why there, will, there is no problem, even though there is the absence of autographs. And you already understand from previous videos that when I reference autographs, I'm talking about the original uh, revelation uh, inspired by God that was written down, those documents uh, originally on tables of stone, later on, on other instruments of, of uh, writing, uh, they would be called uh, by theologians uh, the, the autographs, the originals, of which there are none today, and I've covered that in detail in past uh, videos. Uh, then, next of all, I want to give you some evidence that biblical transmission has been reliable. And I want to share some uh, thoughts with you and some, some facts uh, relative to uh, the reliability of biblical transmission. And then I'm probably going to end tonight by digging into the notion and giving you some references of how to view uh, this alleged issue of copyist errors. Now, uh, let me definitively say to you that in my judgment, it is absolutely impossible when considering the human component that is man, that there has not been the presence of copyist errors. I want to be transparent about that. Those of us that are students of the Bible, uh, that are responsible with handling of the biblical text and related matters, I have never shied away from understanding and the notion that there has been the presence of copyist errors. When I say copyist errors, I'm talking about the inversion, uh, inverting rather, of letters as the scribes trans uh, transcribed, uh, perhaps the misspelling of words, uh, etc., that constitutes copyist uh, errors. Th there's no question about that in my mind that there has undeniably and uncategorically uh, been the presence of the notion of 
of, of copyist errors. But the larger question is, does the copyist errors invalidate the Word of God? In my mind, that is the larger question, and I think that if we employ a bottom-up thinking as opposed to a top-down thinking, top-down thinking, as I've said in other videos, is when a person has a presupposition, a position, a thought, and then they study and argue their way down to cognition. I'm a bottom-up studier. I want to start at the foundation. I want to look at all of the intricate and relevant pieces of information before I reach a final conclusion. And so I would very much suggest to you tonight, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that there is very much the presence, I'm sure, of a number of copyist errors. But again, the larger question is how does those copyist errors, or do those copyist errors render the Bible as uh, not being the Word of God? And I, I want to answer in a resounding uh, no. The Bible is the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of the Word of God. And after I connect the dots tonight, I hope that you'll be able to see where I'm going. I have alluded over and over again, almost in every video, the essentiality of never dismissing the divine component when trying to understand how we got the Bible. When I say the divine component, I'm speaking of God himself. The tools that God has chosen to use uh, as a divine component is revelation and inspiration for our illumination. Those of us that are students of the Word of God full well understand what we are asserting when we say that the Bible in the English language as we now have it today, when it is a dependable and responsibly translated version or translation does not constitute the Word of God, it is the Word of God. But one cannot dismiss the divine component. Now, when we talk about the divine component, when looking at this whole matter of copyist errors, there are two considerations. Number one, the miraculous power of inspiration. And I've talked in detail about theonustia and what theonustia means. It literally means God breathed. That word is only found one time in the entirety of the New Testament Bible, translated from the translated into classical or through classical Koine Greek. And it is our English word, inspiration. It is the word theonustia. God, when he revealed and inspired his word, he did so with theonustia. They, they are words that are God-breathed, words that were breathed by God himself to those who had the gift of inspiration. They subsequently wrote them down, and we all understand that that would initially apply to the autographs or to the original writings uh, that were written by those that had the gift of inspiration chosen by God and utilized by God. So the first important consideration in the divine component is the matter of inspiration. Second of all, as time matriculates, one must be aware of the second component in the, in the presence of God, and that is the non-miraculous power of providence. And God's Providential power and presence is ever there uh, down through the many, many years as God, through providence, protects the integrity uh, and, the, and certainly the preservation of his word. It is because of the providence of God that we have the book that we call the Bible today. So let me move on and give you uh, a little bit of a definition of perspective. When we talk about providence, providence comes or derives from the Latin word providentia. And uh, the word providentia fundamentally signifies foresight. 
Providence, therefore, means foresight. Uh, the word is used to denote the biblical idea of the wisdom and the power which God continually exercises in the preservation and the government of the world. And he does this uh, to the end that his goodwill is accomplished. So what is providence? Uh, from the Greek word providential, providentia, rather, it signifies fundamentally the notion of foresight. Uh, and it is used to denote the biblical idea of the wisdom and power which God continually exercises in the preservation and government of this world in which we live in all matters and affairs of man. The concept of providence is in opposition to a doctrine called deism. There is a doctrine that's been around for a very long time, which is called deism, and deism fundamentally asserts that God has a non-interest in the world and in the affairs of the world or what's going on down here, and so therefore God could not have uh, exercised providence in the preservation of his word. Uh, deism is a theory, uh, and it is certainly a theory that cannot be substantiated by uh, the word of God. So providence is in counterdistinction, or is certainly the, almost the complete opposite of deism. Providence uh, asserts that God is ever present, and he is perpetually present in the preservation and the government of, of, of the world and, and certainly of his word. So I also want to advance the idea that that providence is also in counterdistinction or the opposite of fate or something that happens by chance. Uh, these would be those that are without the element of a benevolent purpose. And, and so God is very much uh, exerting benevolent purpose embodied in providence. So, Brother Shabazz, a lot of words. What are you saying providence is? Providence, from the, from the word Latin word providentia, is the foresight of God. And the foresight of God is manifested concerning the Bible in his continual, his perpetual preservation of the word of God. Now, that we've gotten a definitional perspective of providence, I want to give you three principles to help you understand uh, divine providence. Number one, when understanding divine providence, God never ever operates providentially in any way that is in conflict with, with his, his nature. nature. Uh, let me say that again. God never operates. He never ever operates in any way providentially uh, that is in conflict with his nature or his revealed way. Listen, people, God is righteous. God is holy. God is gracious. Just to name just one or two of his many attributes. When looking at God's providential protection, his providential preservation, his providential watch care, whether it's over his word or other matters, God never, ever, under any circumstances, operates in providence in such a way that it conflicts with his nature. God does not tempt men with evil. God does not seduce men to sin and to transgress. Uh, these are traits and characteristics that are contrary to the very nature of God. So when treating and viewing the notion of the principles for understanding providence, number one, you have to understand that God never acts outside of his nature. Number two, divine providence does not negate man's uh, free will or the freedom of man's will. It is categorically undeniable if for no other reason 
then when you read the Genesis account, which uh, constitutes the book of the beginning of conceivably anything that comes to the mind of man, when you look at man's original creation and the manner in which God uh, resulted him, he creates him a moral free agent, which means man has the freedom and the liberty to choose right, to choose wrong, to choose goodness, to choose evil. These are self-contained uh, uh, wills that can be exerted by all of us. Uh, now, I realize that often we have difficulty in differentiating between God's providential uh, guidance or God's providential perpetual power and the right of man's moral free agency. And while it is often almost unexplainable, I would assert to you tonight that because he is God, God has the ability to allow what he chooses and forbid that which he chooses. So man never loses uh, the freedom of his own will. We are created to be uh, uh, free will agents where we can choose right and wrong, good and evil, good or bad, and, and etc. But that does not negate uh, God's providential power in instances in which God chooses to intervene. Now, Brother Shabazz, what are those instances? I can't answer it, and no one that is antithetical to Christianity, Christology, or theology can definitively give a roster of how God does, what God does, the way God does it in every instance of divine providence. I'm going to assert tonight that divine providence becomes evident based on the teachings of Scripture. While the word providence itself is not found in Scripture, certainly the practice and presence of it is replete throughout the uh, Old and New Testament Bible where we see uh, the providential power of God. Now, providence, ladies and gentlemen, must be distinguished from the miraculous. There are two different things. The miraculous is not the providential, and the providential is not the miraculous. A miracle, if I were to give a definitional perspective to it, is the workings of God um, that is above the natural laws of nature. Uh, that's what a miracle, a Bible miracle is, a God miracle, is that which is above the natural laws of nature. I'm going to take the position tonight that the miraculous dispensation long since ceased, according to uh, context like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 8, in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 14, and I'm cognizant of the fact that there are some of you students that are listening tonight that would take issue uh, with my citation of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. You're certainly according to your studies, entitled to reach those conclusions. However, I'm going to assert the fact that I unapologetically view 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 8 as uh, a, a teaching and, uh, if you will, a prophetic utterance that tells us about the coming of the end of the miraculous dispensation where God would not perform miracles that are above the laws of nature in the way that he did um, during the time of, of Moses or Joshua or during the time of Israel of the Old Covenant. So a miracle is that which is above the laws of nature. Uh, when talking about providence, uh, you have to understand in a miracle, God works directly. In providence, God operates indirectly, and he operates indirectly by employing whatever means he chooses to, to accomplish his end, in a non-miraculous way. In providence, God works behind the scenes, if you will, whereas uh, miracles are designed to be demonstrable. 
uh, miracles are unconditionally uh, viewed as demonstrative or demonstrable. And when I say demonstrable, I'm saying that they're in the open. Uh, that's what I mean by that which is demonstrative or demonstrable. It's, it's, it's in the open. It's more than emotion. It's more than passion. Uh, and those are subsequent definitions that could be used in other contexts when defining providence. But I want to say to you that when I talk about a miracle that's above the laws of nature, uh, they are always demonstrable. They're always very much out in the open, whereas providence seems to operate behind the scenes to accomplish whatever end. God feel, feels that needs to be accomplished. So I want to tell you that when you start the consideration of copyist errors, I don't want to just jump in to copyist uh, errors. I, I want to tell you that where I'm going tonight is to show you how to view these copyist errors. And if you're going to view copyist errors, you've got to be cognizant of the divine component. And the divine component is undergirded by two considerations. And those considerations are the inspiration of God, the theonustia, which has to do with the original autographs, the original revelation and inspiration, and then subsequently the perpetual ongoing providential power of God that is asserted by God himself to guard and protect the preservation of that which he revealed uh, in antiquity. So it was important that I do that. Now, let me move on for the conservation of time and, and talk about the work of the copyist. A copyist would be viewed as perhaps a scribe, an individual, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you must understand a copyist or scribes was not something they did. It was a life. It was a lifestyle. Uh, if you go back and look at uh, many of the historical uh, writings relative to this period of antiquity, and I'll talk about the three periods of uh, the scribes in just a moment and give you the names of them, but when you go back and look at it, uh, you will see that uh, there came a time in uh, the Eastern culture and in the Eastern civilization where scribes were one step below the priestly order. That's how they were viewed. And so I assert that, and I think it's significant and important to point up, because people tend in our culture to get the idea that a scribe or a copyist was just somebody who got off from work somewhere, came in, sat down with an ink pen, a piece of paper, and started either orally or through from a document and started uh, copying that which was written. No, a, a, a scribe, a copyist was not merely something that that scribe or copyist did. It was a life. And it was something that their entire existence was given to. And it was highly esteemed uh, for an individual to be a copyist in that day and time. Again, I believe, according to the providential power and the providential will of God. God, through his infinite wisdom, certainly foreknew the fact that tables of stones would crumble, that papyra, that vellum, that scrolls, that other uh, manifestations of written documents would at some point in time deteriorate. And so through his providence, certainly there are those who come along that can 
uh, copy, translate, but I want you to be clear in your mind when we start this dialogue or this uh, view of copyists that these are not people uh, who just sat down and occasionally did this and did it haphazardly and did it as best they could. Uh, the life of a copyist uh, was comprised of everything but that. Scribes are mentioned in the Bible as far back as 1000 BC. If you look at texts like 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 17, and there are a number of other texts, probably the most popular known scribe of antiquity would probably be Ezra. Uh, Ezra was the scribe, and you probably remember in your Bible school days, or if you've had exposure to the Bible at all, of hearing about uh, Ezra the scribe. So, scribes are mentioned in the Bible as far back as about 1000 BC. Um, history, when we turn to history, history records three general, I didn't say only, but three general periods of Jewish scribal tradition. And when I say Jewish scribal tradition, I'm talking about the many things that they did uh, in the process of, of, of preparing and in the actual work of a copyist transcribing scripture from one document to another. You know, I kind of chuckled as I meditated on this study tonight how on Sunday I took my iPad and I laid it down on top of my Bible. Well, my iPad is full of germs and dirt and all manner of things. And I don't mean to be disrespectful and irreverent to the Word of God, but in our culture, in our time, the way we think, the way we live, uh, often an extra exerted carefulness is not ever present. Unlike in the time of the copyists or scribes, they would wash their hands before touching what they viewed as sacred documents, not only for the act of reverence and respect, but also to not dirty or soil or tarnish or damage uh, the document that they were about to transpose. It was fundamentally and critically important to them that they give their life to the notion of accuracy and conciseness as much as humanly possible. For those of you that are just joining in, we're talking about the notion of copious errors and how, if at all, they affect the Word of God and have they changed the Word of God uh, in what we have as the Holy Bible today. So, history records three general periods of Jewish transcribal uh, tradition. One is called the period of Sophirum. The period of Sophirum probably stretches from the days of Ezra all the way to about uh, 200 BC. After the transcribal period of Sophirum uh, comes along the uh, Talmudic period of, of, of scribes. And the Talmudic period of scribes probably uh, stretches from about 100 AD to 500 AD. And then you have the period of uh, the uh, 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 Masaurus. And the, the Masaurus uh, certainly stretches from about 500 AD to 950 uh, uh, AD. So you have from the time of Ezra all the way to 950 uh, AD, this vast culture, uh, if you will, this vast uh, profession, I'm going to use that word. Uh, yes, I'm comfortable with using that word. The, the vast profession of these scribes who are going to tr to copy or transcribe uh, these documents. I want you to know again that these ladies and gentlemen uh, were not, um, what does this say? I hope you are recording this because it seems 
to be skipping as you uh, okay uh, well can't do anything about facebook sorry about that ladies and gentlemen it's skipping around my apologies for that this is the uh the vehicle that we're using called uh, called facebook so I, I wanted you to to get a better grasp of what of what we make reference when we talk about the work of uh the copyist um they were highly conscientious individuals because of their life and their dedication to the notion of copying these sacred documents. While they were not flawless, yet the evidence is abundant that they were very conscientious. Um, McGarvey, I, I read a, I want to take a quotation from McGarvey, where McGarvey once noted in, in one of his books um, how copyists in the Talmudic period adapted for themselves very minute regulations to preserve the purity of the sacred text. That's, that is to which that is that uh, to which they dedicated their entire existence in their life. They, they wanted to preserve uh, the purity of these sacred texts. Uh, later in the uh, Monoceros uh, era, they took even more stringent steps to ensure that there were top quality manuscripts that were copied. Um, the detailed statistical work of these men is phenomenal. They undertook the task of identifying uh, each book, which included the counting of verses, the counting of words, the counting of letters, even to the extent of after counting the books, the verses, the words, the letters, they would establish the middle of the book um, and, and start noting any peculiarities that had to do with style or genre of writing or other similar matters. What I'm trying to convey to you right now is while we are certainly uh, clear and, and, and are transparent uh, among Christian believers that we are clear that the copyists were not um, perfect, I again assert the notion of God's providential watch care, not his miraculous theonustia, because the copyists clearly were not inspired, but they certainly were subject to the providential, perpetual preservation of God's word. Um, so then, well, Brother Shabazz, you're confusing me. If you're saying that there were errors, then how can the Bible be without error or contradiction? Let me slow down, and I want to put a very clear proposition before you. Initially, I, I gave much time in these videos to the notion of revelation and inspiration, certainly associated with the original autographs. Subsequent to that, every... Uh, Every transmission done by or, uh, or uh, a translating or transmission done by copyists, certainly the providential presence and power of God is there. And there is absolutely not one fundamental, basic, elementary, or for that matter, complex or deep matter that has to do with uh, soteriology, which is salvation, that has been altered as a result of copyist errors. Uh, and I'm going to say this again, not one basic, fundamental, elementary uh, matter that has to do with man's scheme, of, or rather with man's redemptive ability by God's power, has been altered or changed whatsoever as a result of copyist errors errors. The providence of God is very much at play. 
And ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but I want to tell you how that how God through providence accomplished that. I want you to go back and look at uh, videos that I did, perhaps about video two, video three, when I talked about the replete number of manuscripts that are available to us today. Uh, there are in total somewhere around 24,000 manuscripts from antiquity uh, for check, cross-check, textual analysis, textual criticism, higher and lower criticism, and I speak in uh, graphic detail about how to differentiate between matters of authenticity and genuineness, test of higher criticism, lower criticism. I don't want to go back and revisit that, but if you look at uh, the previous, uh, maybe three videos ago, I speak in explicit detail about the notion of uh, our understanding that, that, that uh, there are uh, an untold number of these manuscripts. Either in fragment or in part, there are 5,800 of them in the classical Koine Greek. In addition, there are uh, 10,000 in the Latin language. In addition, there is some other 9,300 in Armenian, Coptic, Syriac, uh, and a number of other languages. What I'm saying to you is when you consider the notion of copyist er errors, and you look at this um, uh, uh, tremendous number of manuscripts that can be checked and double-checked and cross-checked and textual analysis by scholars, not scholars who are good pulpit speakers or individuals, you know, who are good students of the Bible or good students of history, but people who have given their lives to language like the classical Kone Greek, language like the Aramaic, language like the Chaldean Hebrew. And when they scrutinize uh, meticulously all of these many different critical documents, uh, the conclusion of the matter is there are no copyist errors that change the fundamental facts, truth, uh, that has to do with matters of salvation, that has to do with matters of God's way, God's word, God's will, God's worship. Uh, one could go on and on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, it, it just uh, has not impacted. We're talking about letters that were in the wrong place. Um, words that were put before that word. Um, and I don't want you to sit here tonight and get a view in your mind of the English Bible as we see it. We're talking about codex in some of them where there are no periods, commons, question marks, no parenthetical, no parenthesis. Uh, there is no separation of words. It's just run on uh, letters. And even in that context, that it is humanly possible that there is the inversion or inverting of a letter or word. Yet... Uh, there is the ability through God's providence for there to be today something only God could do, which was to give us these replete number of manuscripts for checking and cross-checking and, and analysis and so forth to the point where even uh, honest skeptics have to concede that 99.9% .9 of the revelation and inspiration of God has been discovered by man. Notice I use the careful word discovered, not determined. Please go back to video number two when I differentiated between man determining what goes in scripture and man discovering it. 
God and God alone determines theonustia. Man only has the ability to discover that which God himself has already determined, regardless of the age of textual analysis and textual criticism and so forth. No textual analysis or textual critic has ever enjoyed, no counsel, no one man, no group of people have ever enjoyed the practice of setting down and determining which books go into the scriptures and which do not. I gave a detailed explanation on that in some of my earlier videos. Please go back at your uh, leisure and, and view those. So folks say, yeah, but wait a minute, Brother Shabazz, we don't have no autographs. You can say what you want to say, teach what you, well, here's my answer. No autographs, no problem. Autographs, the originals, no autographs, my response is no problem. It is highly, highly unreasonable to think that truths can be learned only from the autographs. That's absolutely ridiculous and preposterous. That truth can only be learned if we have the first copy ever available to man. I don't know that we have the first copy of anything that's ever been available to man. And, and someone said, yeah, but you're dealing with God. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, I want to be very uh, definitive about this. One of the things about which I am very clear, even in understanding and trying to wrap my, wrap my mind around the notion of uh, providence, no human being has the privilege of setting criteria for God. Well, for me, if God doesn't do A, B, C, D, then it's not this. Why God is determined to do things in the way he has done, you don't know, and I don't know. No matter how pro-Christian I am, and no matter how antithetical to Christian Christianity you may be, there are some things to which we will not get an answer until we see God face to face. And I assure you that there will come a day when all of us will see God face to face and we will have the privilege of questioning him as we've questioned him on the time side of life. I, however, am going to study, dig, probe, research based off of sound, fundamental, tried, tested, and proven approaches to understanding both the Theonustia uh, inspiration of God and that which relegates to the providential power of God. Even though copies were not were imperfect uh, in, their, in their transcription work, even though the, the, the copies of the scriptures um, uh, even in regard to the copies of the scriptures that have uh, survived, it is practically certain and true that when reading the Bible today, we have every truth of God. Every truth of God. Even in the consideration of copyist errors. Uh, there, are too many, there are too many documents, ladies and gentlemen. There are too many, there are too many manuscripts uh, and I don't want to be redundant, but there are entirely too many of them to check, cross-check, and, and so forth. Um, I'm not a scholar. I'm a serious student, but I'm not a scholar. But those who are scholars of language and textual criticism, and etc., certainly uh, have given their lives to these practices, unlike our, those of us, you and I, who are lay people and try to wrap our mind around whether we can grasp how substantive these errors are. No honest student of textual criticism can say that uh, that copyist errors have rendered the Bible as we have it today uh, as not being the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of God. Every fundamental, every practical, every minute truth, even the minute truth, is present, uh, ever present in, in Scripture. 
Well, two more things and I'm gone tonight because I've taken a lot of your time. Let's talk for a few minutes about uh, evidence of reliable Bible transmission. You know what? The world was uh, just come, just filled with skeptics, Gnostics, atheists, individuals who made constant assertions and attacks, attacks against the Bible, sacred writings, Christology, theology, and I've given you definitional perspectives on all those words in other videos. And then in 1947, the unthinkable happened. In 1947, the greatest archaeological discovery of all times took place. It actually took place between 1947 and 1956. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered as a result of an archaeological dig. From 1947 to 1956, there were hundreds of Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts. A few in the classical Kone Greek, in terms of fragments, were found in surrounding caves. These documents believe uh, to have been written between 200 B.C. and the first half of the first century A.D. Now listen, Man did a lot of talking, made a lot of allegations and charges and alleged, you know, uh, uh, alleged against uh, the veracity of Scripture. And then all of a sudden, bang, in 1947, uh, and I believe by the providence of God, there is the greatest archaeological discovery of all times, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every book from the Hebrew Bible was accounted for among those scrolls with the exception of the book of Esther. The entirety of old canon was verified without question. And so when you talk about uh, the evidence of reliable Bible transmission uh, with the discovery of these Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls, I mean, it just closed a lot of mouths and brought a lot of controversy uh, to a grinding halt with all of these allegations and scare tactics, you should abandon Christianity. It's a farce. God is not the God of the Bible. The Bible is filled with copyist errors, human errors. We can't know that they're... Well, that's a lot of scare tactic. And the Dead Sea Scrolls closed a lot of mouths and converted a lot of hearts uh, once these uh, many, many, uh, uh, these many, many manuscripts were uncovered. In part... And I'm going to give you a twofold consideration right here, in part because of the vast amount of manuscript evidence that's in existence today. Uh, some of these date back to the early second century, which brings me to this point. What is implied, inferred as a scare tactic to run people away from the Bible is the notion, well, we just have copies of a copy of a copy of a copy, and, you know, when we go back to anything that resembles as far as we can get back, you're talking about something into the 1500s. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Ladies and gentlemen, the providence of God is manifested in the fact there is no other book on the planet where we have documents that go that far back into antiquity. Many of the writings, or rather the writings of the inspired men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Paul, uh, Peter, James, uh, those were first century writers. In By the second century, we, we have access to manuscripts that come from that time. So my point is, 
the amount of time for copying and recopying uh, is something that is relatively uh, brief, particularly when compared to a plethora of other documents that come out of antiquity. There's nothing comparable to it. There's nothing comparable to this phenomenal book called the Holy Bible and the manuscripts from which we've had it translated in the English language. So don't buy the hype, you know, that it's just been, you know, thousands of years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of years and uh, there's no way we can know that the succession has come down right. No, listen, the Dead Sea Scrolls that shot a lot of miles and we're talking about documents that date back to the early second century. Equally impressive are the numbers of manuscripts, and, and I want to don't want to be redundant, but I want to remind you we're talking about again um, a 5,800 uh, in the classical Kone Greek, uh, some 10,000 in the Latin, some 9,300 in various other languages, Armenian, Coptic, Syriac, uh, and, and, and a number of other languages. In total, some uh, upwards to 24,000 manuscripts in fragment or in whole that can be checked, cross-checked, etc., etc., etc. When you take those two components under consideration and then look at tribe, a scribal error, uh, it relegates it to nothing because there's too much uh, evidence there to define uh, when something needs to be corrected and, and etc. In, in a book called um, The Text of the Earliest New Testament Greek Manuscripts, it's, it's a 700-page, 700-page, uh, multi-volume uh, book that's edited by Philip Comfort and, and David Barrett. In, in Comfort and Barrett's book, um, they have more than 60 of the earliest Greek manuscripts. Now, let me slow down here the originals of which are housed in museums throughout the world. When I say the originals, the antecedent to originals would be those 60 Greek manuscripts. Those 60 Greek manuscripts, the originals of those 60 Greek manuscripts are housed in museums across the world, but in their book, uh, there are pictures, some of 60 different of these documents. Uh, in the introduction of that book, uh, Comfort and, and David uh, Barrett state, and I quote, all of the manuscripts contained in the book are dated from the early 2nd century, the early 2nd century to the beginning of the 4th century. That would be uh, A.D. 100 to A.D. 300. That's on page 17 uh, of this book that I've referenced. It's called The Text of the Earliest New Testament Greek Manuscripts. Excellent read. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, but if you look at page 17, and that's where I took this quotation from, uh, you will you will be able to see that there are pictures and those documents date back to the first century. So this hype about oh man, you know this is problematic because all this time has gone by and a copy of 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 a copy. Well, many of the manuscripts that we now have in our possession some date back to the first a uh, second century. So there's a very relatively small time window for. Uh, the kind of consideration that I think comes to people's mind when they think about uh, an, uh, an immense amount of time between God's revelation and inspiration and then what we have subsequently written in this book called the Holy Bible today. In fact, several of the most specific, uh, 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 significant papyri date from the middle of the second century and therefore provide the earliest direct witness 
You know, I'm going to say that again. Several of these most significant papyri date all the way back to the middle of the second century. And as a result, they provide the earliest direct witness uh, to the New Testament autographs. Um, they even suggest that it's possible that some of the manuscripts are thought to be the very early part of the second century. And that's a significant statement because the earlier or further we go back, the less likelihood there are for people to think that there are these enormous and gross errors that have been enjoyed, which has rendered uh, the Bible as we have it today as uh, not the word of God. Professor Boss, what are you saying tonight? Well, let me put this in simple terms. In simple terms, I'm clear that there, because of the human component, that certainly there would have been the presence of copyist errors. However, I am here to vehemently assert that not one copyist error has changed, altered, uh, any fundamental, major, minor, minute, or paramount consideration of New Testament Christianity. Ladies and gentlemen, the more that I peruse the internet and I look at many of the statements and many of the alleged questions that are pregnant with inference, uh, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm convinced that people have a highly erroneous view of these kinds of subjects. And some of them, I'm ashamed to say, uh, are preachers uh, or have been preachers. And, and I want to apologize if I in any way sound condescending. I'm in no wise trying to be condescending. But it's just owing to me how that there have been those who thought themselves to be good students of the Word of God, but yet they consistently ignore fundamental principles of understanding the Word of God like context and understanding that even in the use of a word, that a word is subject to context. Please tell me tonight in what language would a word, a group of words, a a sentence of words, a paragraph of words, or thoughts should be conveyed without a proper context of understanding. Every word in the Bible has to be viewed by the context in which it is written, and not the shotgun approach, where we generally uh, utilize uh, a word. In other words, the word means one thing. When you talk about English language, it's no different. I would, I would highly... I would highly recommend and uh, suggest that when people in their right mind talk about the love of their dog and then the love of their wife, they are talking about two different loves, even though the word love is germanely used. The interpretation of that word is subsequently uh, determined by the context in which it is used. People ask questions like, is, the, is it with copious errors? Then is the Bible unadulter unadulterated? Is the word of God rather unadulterated? Well, that tells me, number one, you do not understand the word unadulterated as it is used in the context of scripture, let alone how to apply it. The context in the embodiment of the question tells me that you do not understand that and you've been very uncareful in your digging, probing, research, and etc. Um, as I begin to conclude tonight, there is one or two other matters I just want to throw at you, and that is the scare tactic of saying, well, you know what, Brother Shabazz, you're doing all these videos and getting all the, into all this technical stuff and carrying on. You know, what are you trying to do? Show how smart you are? Well, this has nothing to do with intelligence or ability or giftedness. This has to do with the fact of the growing number of individuals who really are not knowledgeable about the Word of God. And the, the affirmation in my mind, and uh, affirmation that I want to make before you, is that I've been very clear that man of God, uh, minister, servant, preacher, teacher, that you were put into the church to teach. So I don't expect the members at Harlem to have an in-depth understanding of matters uh, about which I've espoused tonight. That's my 
job, my responsibility to teach and impart God's wisdom, God's knowledge to them. I'm not bothered about the fact that every member of the Church of Christ does not know that there is a consideration of copyist errors. Hey! Ask it. Let's talk about it. Study it. I'll give you a study perspective. Uh, but I know it because Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told me in the scriptures, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know what, brethren? I love you. I love everybody. I don't have issues. I, I don't have issues with anybody. Don't have time to have issues with anybody. But brethren, we're falling down on our job. And the reason why we're falling down on our job is because we're spending too much time getting up on Sunday morning with a Saturday night lesson, and we're not digging and, and, and probing and researching. We're spending too much time, not everyone, not everyone, but there are too many of us that are spending too much time preaching about the word instead of preaching the word we're allowing too much time to elapse where we use terminology phraseology without context without reasserting with definitive concise definition what we are teaching and as a result it has opened the door for agnostics and skeptics and atheists and critics to shoot pot shots at us which bothers me because for one I'm not bothered why about the fact that there are many members of uh, the Lord's Church, the Church of Christ, that do not understand the Word of God on the level that I understand it. I am going to teach Harlem about copyist errors. I'm going to teach Harlem about oral tradition. I'm going to teach Harlem about textual transmission. I'm going to teach Harlem about the historicity of Jesus Christ, the man of God. That is my responsibility, my obligation as a minister of God. Brethren, let's get on our job. And if we get on our job and start teaching and indoctrinating and uh, you know what? If you're going to get emotional, fine. But if you're going to get emotional, at least have the decency to know what you're being emotional about. Information in the head may produce emotion in the heart, but we don't want to skip the informative step. And so it just kind of nags at me that there are those out there who are making these kinds of pot shots. Hey, do all you Christian people know this? Well, no, that's your job to see to it that they know and to see to it that they understand and to give them the understanding. And Harlem has every right to expect me to climb in that classroom and climb in that pulpit with information, with indoctrination, with truth, with evidence, with proof, uh, with the word of God, nothing but the word of God. They have every right to expect that of me or I don't deserve to be there. And I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm not trying to be negative. And I'm certainly not blaming everyone. But I'm perusing the internet, I'm looking at these questions, and some of them are posted by preachers. And it is, it's just alarming to see that we have stopped studying, stopped digging, stopped probing. Copious errors, it doesn't alter the Word of God and, and render it not the Word of God. I believe with all my heart that the Bible is the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of God. This book can lead me from earth glory I will ever uh, maintain until I can find evidence and I have found none that I should not put my hope my faith my trust my confidence in every word that ever proceeded out of the mouth of God and I see not only the miraculous theonustia the inspiration of God but I see the providential pres uh, preservation of God at play so I trust the book and when I find a translation or a version that is not accurate I know it and I know where to go find the sources to tell me that this is a departure. But brethren, ladies and gentlemen, friends, Facebook family, 
These matters are indictments against people, not against God, not against the Bible, not against Christ, not against the church, not against uh, the Christian community, those who have been baptized for the remission of sins and added to the church about which we read in the scriptures. It's an indictment against the individuals. And I love you. It's an indictment against some of you that are posting these questions uh, without digging, searching, probing, uh, and, and, and better arriving at truth uh, before we go public with, with these kinds of erroneous uh, charges and allegations. All right, my time is gone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you for taking the time. Please know that I have a new Facebook page. It is called Moments in Meditation with O.J. Shabazz. I did it only because I wanted one place where all the eight videos can be viewed even at your leisure. Uh, there's some other uh, uh, videos on there, places where I've preached around the country uh, by God's grace in, in the last year or two. You don't necessarily have to look at those. Put them up for those who wanted to see them. But I would like to ask you to please go to Moments in Meditation with O.J. Shabazz. Please like. Uh, please follow me. I need you to. F I'm trying to get the word out. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, when I finish this, I'm going to study some other subjects that may very well make me a highly unpopular man among the people of God. But I think there's some other matters that we need to study, like the crisis of leadership in the Church of Christ, of the influence of premillennialism and Calvinism in pulpits across the United States of America. We'll get to it one day, one, at, some, at, at some time, if God is willing. Please, Moments in Meditation, O.J. Shabazz, please uh, follow me. Uh, I'm trying to build this following to get the word out. That's what I mean by following. Because when you like it and you share it, someone else shares it, they share it, the word gets out. And I, I'm not going to call names, but I am really, really uh, shocked at some of the celebrities known celebrities uh, that have watched these videos and uh, has kind of conveyed the notion to me that they have been watching and are watching. So we want to get the word out. Would you help me do that? God bless you. Be safe. And we pray that the God of eternal salvation will bless you and he will bless you real good. Good night.